This is Mike Grell, and you're listening to Warlord Worlds. Welcome back, and thank you for listening to Warlord Worlds, a fan podcast devoted to the comic creations of writer and artist Mike Grell, including the Warlord, John Sable, and Green Arrow. I'm Ruth. And I'm Darren, and this is a fan podcast. We're not affiliated with Mike Grell, and the opinions expressed are just ours. We do this podcast simply because we enjoy reading and talking about the comics of Mike Grell. The number of issues covered in each episode varies based on story arcs. Today we're talking about a special three-part John Sable story from issues 25 through 27, and we're covering Green Arrow issues 29 and 30, and the Warlord issues 35 through 36. And we'll also continue our coverage of the Legion of Superheroes by Mike Grell with issues 212 and 213. Our special guests joining us for that segment are Ange of the Supergirl Comic Box Commentary Blog and Jeff Messer of the Geek Brain Podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, please check out MikeGrell.com. That's his official site. You'll find his convention schedule, photos, and news updates there. Mike has several upcoming convention appearances scheduled during January through March, including New Orleans, Albuquerque, Irving, Texas, Las Vegas, and Dayton, Ohio. As always, pre-orders for convention sketches may be placed through Scott Cress at CatskillComics.com. And if you can't make it to a convention, but would like to get an original drawing, then Scott Cress can help you out. Just make your request at CatskillComics.com. We also recommend the Mike Grell page on Facebook. The site features lots of great news and images and is expertly run by Gus Ceballos and Jeff Messer. Mike Grell's variant covers for the current series continue. Recent covers include Green Arrow with his longtime friend Green Lantern for issue 30. Issue 31 features Green Arrow along with members of the Justice League, including Superman, Wonder Woman, Batman, Green Lantern, and The Flash. Green Arrow is on a cliff and is preparing to shoot an arrow straight up into the sky on issue 32. The golden background is gorgeous. The cover of issue 33 makes me think of the style in the Longbow Hunters. On the right, it has perfect profiles of Green Arrow beside Black Canary, and on the left side of the cover, Green Arrow is in a classic pose taking aim with his bow and arrow, and there's a cityscape with mountains in the background. It's awesome. Mike Grell's character Shadow is the focal point of issue 34. She is standing back-to-back with Green Arrow, and they are letting arrows fly as they fend off a large group of sword-wielding attackers. Mike Grell mentions this particular cover on his website, saying, This is the first time I've drawn Shadow for a comic in more than two decades. I'm very pleased with the way it came out. The finished inks are going on my wall. And we find Green Arrow underwater battling a sea creature on the cover of issue 35. He needs Aquaman to help out. All of these covers are wonderful, and we hope every Mike Grell fan is collecting the variant cover issues to show DC just how much we love his work on Green Arrow. In other big news, a new Tarzan novel was recently published, and it features interior illustrations by Mike Grell. The book is titled Tarzan, The Greystoke Legacy Under Siege. It's written by Ralph Laughlin and Ann Johnson and features a cover by Tom Gianni. We know Mike is a longtime fan of Tarzan, so he must have enjoyed getting to do about a dozen original drawings for this book. 
Every illustration is stunning, and we hope he gets future opportunities to illustrate more of these books. We enjoy sharing listener feedback, so please feel free to write us anytime and join in on the conversations. We'd love to hear your thoughts about any of Mike Grell's titles. I'm always interested in hearing what others think of Mike Grell's stories and art, and it's great to hear how people first discovered his work. We'll provide our email address and other ways to reach us at the end of the episode. Warlord Worlds is part of the Rad Adventures Podcast Network. If you enjoy the show, please consider checking out our other podcasts that are available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and YouTube. Xenozoic Xenophiles covers the post-apocalyptic adventure series Xenozoic Tales, featuring Cadillacs and dinosaurs by writer and artist Mark Schultz. And Trekker Talk is devoted to the adventures of 23rd century bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair from the pages of the sci-fi comic Trekker by writer and artist Ron Randall. Mike Grell, Mark Schultz, and Ron Randall are our favorite comic creators. Their stories are filled with action and adventure and interesting characters, and their art is excellent. We hope you'll try out our other shows, and we'll be sure to include links to those podcasts in our show notes. John Sable Freelance, number 25, June 1985. Homecoming, part one, The Angel. Written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Letters, Ken Brusnack. Colors, Janice Cohen. Editor, Mike Gold. Disguised as B.B. Flem, John Sable is in his editor, Eden Kendall's office, and the two are discussing an offer to turn his children's books about leprechauns into a Broadway musical like Cats. After removing the B.B. Flem wig and glasses, John stops by to see Mike Blackman, where he runs into her roommate, Gray, who is feeling down because the latest Broadway show he was in folded after only a week. Mike has completed a painting to accompany the hunting article John wrote, and he walks to the post office to put the package in the mail, and then makes a phone call to Eden Kendall. The next day, John stops by to invite Mike to spend the weekend with him in his hometown of Middlebury, Vermont. It's going to be his 40th birthday, and he wants her to spend it with him. At that moment, Gray dances into the room. He is all smiles. He just received a phone call from his agent who told him that author B.B. Flem chose him to do the choreography for the new Broadway show about his children's books. Mike glances knowingly at John. At the cabin, the ground is already covered in snow, and Mike wonders if they'll be trapped for days, which is something John obviously finds appealing. The two spend a day walking in the woods and making snow angels. That evening, Mike looks at a picture of John when he was a little boy that is on the mantle. Then John shares a photo album with her that includes a picture of his real mother, and he begins to tell the story of a brave Allied operative working with the resistance in Nazi-controlled Belgium in 1944. The cover features an image of John Sable in a picture frame sitting on a table. His business card is laying on the table in front of the picture, along with a knife and pistol. Inside, the story is filled with many more sweet moments than most John Sable adventures. I particularly like that John Sable secretly chose Gray to do the choreography for the Broadway show about his books. I also like the scenes of John and Mike playing in the snow at the cabin. It was terrific to see him smile so much, and the images of the forest covered in snow are all amazing. My favorite art is definitely the double-page title page spread of The Cabin Covered in Snow. In addition, there are some truly stunning images of our characters throughout the issue. There is a very sad image of Sable early in the story, which is a great counterpoint to the images of John smiling at the cabin with Mike later in the story. John Sable Freelance, number 26, July 1985. The Homecoming, part 2. The Moses Line. 
Written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Letters, Ken Brusenak. Colors, Janice Cohen. Editor, Mike Gold. As snow falls on the cabin in Vermont, John Sable continues telling his story to Mike Blackman. His father, Jonathan Lightfoot Sable, was the son of a Welsh miner and a Scotch-Irish schoolteacher who came to the U.S. at the age of 15. During World War II, he was stationed with the Air Force in England. In March 1944, he was flying a bombing run over Nazi-controlled Belgium when his plane was shot down. He was able to parachute to the ground, where he was lucky to be found by members of the Belgian resistance, including the beautiful Simone Fortin, who runs the Moses Line for aiding Allied soldiers trapped behind enemy lines. Over the next few weeks, he was given new clothes and taught how to walk, speak, and act for his journey home. Brussels to Paris, to the Pyrenees, to Gibraltar, and finally back to England. Sometimes by foot, sometimes by train, sometimes by boat. The trip would take many weeks. Nearing Gibraltar, Jonathan and Simone are spotted by a single German plane. Simone is able to bring it down with a machine gun, but is injured in the process, and she is soon running a high fever. John leaves her in a cave and sneaks into a German camp to steal medical supplies. After two days, Simone has recovered. She and Jonathan spend a romantic night together, and he asks her to come to England with him, but she has saved 47 Allied soldiers so far, and know that she needs to stay to save more. Jonathan arrives back in time for D-Day on June 6, 1944, but he receives a cable saying Simone has been captured and is presumed dead. The cover features an image of Jonathan Lightfoot Sable and Simone being fired upon by the German plane. Knowing that Mike Grell served in the Air Force makes this story particularly interesting, and the drawings of the airplanes are terrific. I really enjoyed this tale and learning about John Sable's parents. I liked the way both characters were able to save each other at different parts of the story. Some favorite art includes the pages when the bomber is shot down and Sable parachutes to the ground, as well as the pages of Sable and Simone hiking through the European countryside, followed by the encounter with the German fighter plane. The final panel is troubling, but there is one more part to the story. What could be next? John Sable Freelance, number 27, August 1985. The Homecoming, part 3, Torch Song. Written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Letters, Ken Brusnack. Colors, Janice Cohen. Editor, Mike Gold. It's 1951, and a ship steams past the Statue of Liberty. A small boy wearing a cap and carrying a canvas bag looks around with eyes wide with wonder. After being processed at Ellis Island, the little boy waits in a small room. He stares at a photo of his mother, Simone, and cries. A tall man steps into the room and asks his name. The boy replies, John Moses. The man is Jonathan Lightfoot Sable, and he tells the boy that he's his father. As snow falls on the cabin in Middlebury, Vermont, John Sable has a somber look on his face, and he tells Mike Blackman that his father didn't have to claim him, and it caused his father lots of trouble. His mother didn't die when she was captured by the Germans. Instead, she escaped and had a son from the night she and Jonathan spent together. But now, six years later, she had died, and Jonathan learned about his son and took him in. However, in the intervening years, Jonathan Sable had married, and his wife was not happy about raising a son he had with another woman. Little John Moses Sable sat in a chair and cried as he heard his father and stepmother yelling about him. In retrospect, he knows he was a troublemaker and often lashed out against his father as he grew older. 
He was later cut off by the family and worked his way through college playing saxophone. At college, he started competing in the pentathlon, which eventually led him to the Olympics in Munich, where he met Elise. John Sable has told all of this to Mike Blackman because, even though he doesn't know if he can change, he wants to try to make a life with her. Mike kisses him on the cheek and wishes him a happy birthday and walks to the bedroom. John takes out a saxophone and begins to play while thinking about Elise, his children, and Mike. Then he walks into the bedroom where Mike is waiting for him. Outside, the snow continues to fall on the cabin. The cover features many images of John Sable as a child at Ellis Island, as a teenager with a hot rod, and as a young man playing saxophone. This story is bittersweet, but powerful, as we learn John Sable's history from childhood up to his meeting with Elise. The dialogue is well-written, and the characters feel realistic and believable. It's an honest story that's well-told. My favorite page has John Sable and Mike looking at the photo album in a dimly lit room as the flames from the fireplace cast shadows on them. The images are all stunning. Later, there are two pages of images as John and Mike continue their conversation. It really shows how a great artist can make two pages of two characters talking very compelling. There are a variety of perspectives and many close-ups, some of which are uncomfortably close-up. The images really convey the mood of this very well-told tale. Ah, after a long day of criminal activity, there's nothing I like better than to sit down and listen to the old radio. Wait a minute, that's not a radio, it's... Plastic Man! Plastic Man! Plastic Man! That's right, it's the Plastic Cast, a brand new podcast dedicated to Plastic Man. I'm your host, Max Romero. Together, we'll be talking about Plastic Man in the Golden Age, the Silver Age, the Bronze Age, and every other age you can think of, right up to his upcoming reappearance in DC Rebirth. We'll also be talking about any Plastic Man news that might be coming up, and his appearances in every media from comics to cartoons. Makes me woozy just to think about it. I hope you'll join me to talk about the longest arm of the law, here on the Plasticast, here on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Plastic Man! Green Arrow number 29, February 1990, Coyote Tears, Part 1. Writer Mike Grell, pencils Dan Jurgens, inks Dick Giordano and Frank McLaughlin, letters John Costanza, colors Julia Lacquement, assistant editor Katie Main, editor Mike Gold. A coyote stands quietly surveying the rugged wilderness surrounding him, including massive mountains in the distance. The coyote sees a bear just waking from its winter slumber, the bear slowly walks down to the ocean shore to a horrible sight. A giant oil tanker called the Argon Warrior sits just offshore. It has run aground and oil is leaking from a huge gash in the side of the tanker. Birds can be seen struggling in the oily water. At a news conference at Argon Oil, spokesman Paul Chandler is answering questions about the tanker, insisting that the company is doing everything possible to clean up the spill. He disputes the number of birds killed in the spill and insists that no sea otters have been killed when suddenly two members of Greenpeace throw a barrel at him and several dead oil-covered otters land at his feet. Later, upstairs, Chandler confronts Lou Springsteen, the captain of the Argonne Warrior, and questions him about the rumors that he was drunk when the ship ran aground. Chandler decides that he needs to get the captain out of town until things quiet down. 
a small plane flies across the Denali National Park in Alaska and lands in the water at Two Moons Lake. Argon Oil has a corporate lodge there, where Captain Springsteen is left to keep him away from the reporters in the city. Later, in Seattle, Oliver Queen is reading the newspaper, which features a story about the captain of the Argon Warrior, who has been missing for two weeks. In the background, a news story details the large number of birds and sea otters that have died from the oil spill. In addition, bears emerging from the winter hibernation are searching for food. Bears have had to be shot when they have come too close to the cleanup crews working in the area. Oliver crumples the paper and packs a suitcase and grabs his bow and walks out, leaving Dinah staring at him knowingly. After gathering information at the docks, Oliver, now disguised as the Green Arrow, begins to make his way across country to Two Moons Lake, north of the Denali National Park in Alaska. The coyote we saw earlier watches him and recognizes another hunter. Finding the cabin, the Green Arrow kicks in the door, surprising Captain Springsteen. The cover by Dan Jurgens and Dick Giordano features an image of Green Arrow on a rocky cliff, staring down at the damaged tanker as oil leaks into the ocean. A coyote stands watching from the ledge above him. The issue features a disclaimer that while the story was inspired by a recent oil spill in Alaska from a stranded tanker, the creators have taken literary license with the story and characters. While many images in the issue are distressing, as we see the devastating effects of the oil spill on the area wildlife, the issue nevertheless features absolutely gorgeous images. There are so many beautiful images, including the opening page of the coyote surveying the land, as well as a gorgeous page of caribou walking along a river and across the tundra at sunset. And I love the pages of Green Arrow tracking through the forest as the coyote watches from the distance. Mike Grell's story is great and hits all of the right points that would motivate Oliver Queen to go after the ship's captain. Green Arrow number 30, March 1990. Coyote Tears Part 2. Writer Mike Grell. Pencils Dan Jurgens. Inks Dick Giordano and Frank McLaughlin. Letters John Costanza. Colors Julia Lackament. Assistant Editor Katie Main. Editor Mike Gold. Our story picks up with the coyote we've been seeing howling at the moon. It then sits and watches Green Arrow enter the cabin at Two Moons Lake. But Captain Lou Springsteen seems uninterested in the tall man dressed all in green holding a bow and arrow. Instead, he just rushes forward in fear to push the door closed. His panicked voice fills the cabin and Oliver can tell he's suffering from cabin fever and too much alcohol. He's convinced the coyote is mystical. It watches over him and howls night and day. He's tried to shoot it, but he claims it can't be killed. The coyote howls again, and Springsteen crumples to the floor. Meanwhile, in the Argonne Oil boardroom, spokesman Paul Chandler has an idea that will turn public opinion in their favor, and he thinks it's time for them to go pick up Captain Lou Springsteen. The repairs to the Argonne Warrior oil tanker are nearly complete. It's time for some fresh paint. At the site of the accident, we see a duck caught in the oily water, and a large eagle swoops down and grabs it in its talons. At a press conference, Paul Chandler announces that Argonne Oil is recommending that the member companies turn over ownership of the Alaska oil pipeline to the Native Americans in the area. It's a no-lose situation for Argonne Oil because it is unlikely that the other companies will agree. The gesture will bring goodwill, but no real changes. In addition, Argonne Oil is changing its name to show its renewed emphasis on environmental protections. 
Paul Chandler then goes to meet the pilot, who is the only other person who knows where Captain Springsteen is hidden. Chandler plans to turn him over to the government, along with a press release implicating him as the sole cause of the accident. As the plane flies over Denali National Park, a large eagle covered in oil circles overhead. It is obviously sick and begins a death spiral. It crashes through the front window of the small plane, causing the pilot to lose control. The plane spins erratically and crashes into the side of a mountain, exploding in flames. Back at Two Moons Lake, Oliver Queen has heard enough. He leaves the obviously insane Captain Lou Springsteen alone in the cabin and begins to hike back to civilization. Oliver assumes that someone from Argonne Oil will eventually come to collect him, not knowing that the only people who knew where he was are now dead. Outside, the coyote watches as the green arrow disappears into the forest. Anchored offshore, the Argonne Warrior sports the newly painted name of the Argos Voyager on the side. The cover by Dan Jurgens and Dick Giordano shows an eagle trapped in oily water and a shocked green arrow watches from the shore. The issue is full of real-life parallels and divine retribution. We see cruel characters get what they deserve, which is satisfying, but we also see how companies can redirect attention and how quickly the public can forget something that was so upsetting for a while. I really like the parallels between Green Arrow and the Coyote. Early in the story, the Coyote recognizes Oliver as a hunter like him, yet the Coyote is also an observer to what is going on around him. The same applies to Green Arrow in this story. He isn't actively involved in the story, but is only an observer. It's a great parallel. My favorite art in this issue is the double-page title page that shows the coyote watching Green Arrow enter the cabin. Another favorite is a few pages later when the coyote is howling at the moon and Captain Springsteen crumples in a panic at the sound. Coming to media players everywhere in 2017 from the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Beginning with the origin of his comic book fandom and ending with the destruction of the universe. Professor Zoom Yukinori leads a monthly expedition through his favorite single-issue comic book stories from the Bronze Age of DC Comics. While promising unique celebrity guest perspectives in an ambitious attempt to set this program apart from other comic book review podcasts. Thrill to the imagination. Bask in the brilliance. Experience the wonder of... The Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show. Discover how compressed storytelling can broaden one's mind. Listen for it wherever Fire & Water Podcast Network podcasts are networking. The Warlord, number 35, July 1980. Gambit, written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Inks, Vince Coletta. Colors, Adrian Roy. Letters, John Costanza. Editor, Jack C. Harris. Our story picks up where the previous issue left off, as Travis Morgan bids farewell to Machista Mariah in the distant past of Wizard World. As he sheaths his sword, he begins to travel through time, but he does not land back in Skataris as expected. Instead, he finds himself inside a modern house in the suburbs. Looking outside, he thinks it might be the East Coast, maybe New Jersey. Suddenly, a female warrior appears behind him. She calls herself Agnes and holds a sword and shield and challenges him to battle. 
Morgan does not wish to fight her, but defends himself with his sword. However, when Agnes reaches for a rifle in a case on the wall, Morgan instinctively pulls out his pistol and fires at her. But she vanishes, and the bullet hits the wall behind her. Suddenly, a bar appears behind him, and a bartender offers him a drink. But it's drugged, and as Morgan starts to pass out, he sees several robed men coming from an adjoining room. As the robed men prepare to sacrifice Morgan on the kitchen table, a pair of dice are rolled. And suddenly, Morgan wakes and grabs his sword and slashes at the men in robes. Then a hand moves a small figure on what looks like a chessboard, and suddenly a blazing fire demon erupts from the oven in the kitchen and attacks Morgan. His sword is useless as it passes through the flames. Then the creature throws Morgan out of the window into the yard. Following him outside, the fire demon picks up a car and throws it at Morgan, just as we see the pair of dice roll again. Then the car hits a fire hydrant, and water gushes free, turning the fire demon into steam that quickly dissipates. Hey, fire and water turned to steam. It's like our friends from the Fire and Water podcast suddenly made a guest appearance. Hi, Shag and Rob. A hand picks up another figure on the chessboard, and suddenly Tweedledee and Tweedledum appear. One is holding an axe, and the other is holding a chainsaw. As Morgan battles the two, the dice roll again, and suddenly Tweedledee and Tweedledum are caught in a blazing fire that burns down the house. Morgan looks on and wonders what might happen next. In the clouds, two men that appear to be dressed as Greek gods look down at a chessboard with Travis Morgan as one of the playing pieces. One of these gods is called Mike, and the other is called Jack. But then their boss walks in and tells them the next story had better be good after that last one. Mike looks down at a game of devils and demons and says, Wait until you see what I've planned for Morgan next. Then suddenly, Travis Morgan finds himself back in the land of tree-dwelling dwarves with Shakira and tells her that there is more to this sword than meets the eye. The cover by Mike Grell features a dynamic image of Morgan using his sword to defend himself against a chainsaw. The issue was meta before the word was commonly used to describe a self-aware story that refers to itself. The action is amusing and a little crazy as you figure out what is happening and the art is fun. It's absolutely hilarious when you see the two figures who are playing the game and immediately recognize that one of them is Mike Grell and the other is editor Jack C. Harris. In the closing panel, Mike attributes the issue to a late-night pepperoni pizza with Jack C. Harris. The Warlord number 36, August 1980. Interlude, written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Inks, Vince Coletta. Colors, Adrian Roy. Letters, Ben Oda. Editor, Jack C. Harris. Travis Morgan and Shakira have arrived at the bustling market of Bondacar to purchase horses and supplies. But when Morgan sees a gang of men attacking a young woman in an alley, he rushes forward with his sword drawn and kills one of the men as others turn and run. Morgan turns to the beautiful young woman and learns her name is Carell, but she will not say anything more and runs away. Morgan decides to chase after her, but Shakira turns and looks at a cat in the alley and says she would prefer to stay in the company of creatures with more sense. Morgan races through the alley following Carell's footprints and the scent of her perfume, which smells like lotus blossoms. He sees her run into a building, but then sees a large creature follow her. It has horns and a human torso with the legs of a goat and reminds him of a large satyr. He finds the creature towering over Carell. Morgan attacks it, 
and it turns and rakes its talons across his chest before Morgan is able to drive his sword through the beast's chest. Corell tells Morgan that an evil wizard wants her for his bride. She refused, and he has sent men and creatures to capture her and return her. Corell leans forward to kiss Morgan, but he passes out. He is running a fever from the wound he received fighting the creature. Corell cares for him for a while, but when he finally recovers, he wakes to find he is alone. Then he hears Corell scream in the distance. Morgan races up the stairs and finds Corell tied up and Demos is standing over her. Morgan draws his sword to attack Demos, who fires bolts of energy from its hands. However, the Hellfire sword protects Morgan from the blast. As he slashes at Demos, he yells, For Corell, for Tara, for Joshua, for me. Morgan frees Corell, but she recoils from him. She saw his face when he attacked Demos, and she could tell he enjoyed the slaughter. She runs from him in terror. Back in the alley, Shakira has acquired their horses. Morgan joins her, but tells her he feels empty. He used to blame Demos for the evil in his life, but now he feels the evil may be inside him. The cover by Mike Grell features an image of Travis Morgan holding his sword and leaping into action to battle the satyr and to save Corell. It's a great issue as Mike Grell examines Travis Morgan's motivations and actions. I really like Shakira's attitude and responses. She is very matter-of-fact and doesn't get caught up in following Morgan out of blind loyalty. The art is terrific. I particularly like the first panel at the market. The lighting creates a nice atmosphere. The double-page title page is dynamic as Morgan battles the group of men who are attacking Corell. The page of Morgan's fevered dreams is a great way to remind readers of past events with Tara, Joshua, and Demos. I really like the composition of the page. And the battle between Morgan and Demos is another dramatic page that is lavishly illustrated. Aquaman and Firestorm fighting crime together. So come down or burn them up. No one does it better. Whenever you find trouble, they'll always be there to catch them in a bubble or even torch their hair. They stand for truth and justice. The Fire and Water Podcast, celebrating Aquaman, King of the Seven Seas, and Firestorm, the Nuclear Man. Available at Fire and Water Podcast, Aquaman Shrine, Firestorm Fan, and on iTunes and Stitcher. I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shag, here to talk about Firestorm. Along with me is my co-host, Rob Kelly, here to talk about some guy that talks to fish. Really? You're going to pull this crap during the promo? It's bad enough. I have to put up with your shenanigans every... Next up is our coverage of Mike Grell's run on the Legion of Superheroes. Mike started his career at DC Comics with a brief run on Aquaman, followed by a long run on the Legion, where his excellent artwork quickly won over fans, and he remained the artist on the book from issues 202 through 224, and he continued to do covers for quite a while after that. Knowing there are many knowledgeable Legion fans, we invited guests onto the show to discuss these stories, and we're very excited to have these experts covering these fun issues. Joining us today are our friends Dr. Ange of the Supergirl Comic Box Commentary Blog and Jeff Messer of the Geek Brain Blog and Podcast. Also, if you're a Legion fan or just interested in learning more about the team, then we encourage you to visit the Legion of Superbloggers. This extensive site features news, reviews, and discussions from a great group of dedicated fans. We highly recommend the group, and we'll provide links to their site in our show notes, and we'll send out a big thank you to Russell Burbage from the group, who has been very supportive of our coverage. 
Hello again, Warlord Worlds listeners. It's Dr. Ange, curator of the Supergirl comic box commentary blog and one of the Legion of Superbloggers. I'd once again like to thank Darren and Ruth for inviting me on to do a guest review of a Mike Grell Legion book. Today I will be reviewing another issue which is very dear to my heart, Superboy in the Legion of Superheroes number 212. This issue, like many Legion books around this time, has two stories. The main story always involves the whole team and Superboy, and the second story always focuses on one or two of the roster. Both stories in this issue are written by comic legend Jim Shooter, with art by, of course, Mike Grell, delivered with his usual elan. And this issue is important to Legion fans because it introduces us to a number of characters who will remain part of the mythos, mostly as villains. But it is important to me because it introduced the character of Calorie Queen into Legion lore, and for some reason I love this very obscure character. So reviewing this is a treat. The cover shows Calorie Queen in a pretty mod, bell-bottomed, more not-there-than-there one-piece red pantsuit, and others standing over the fallen bodies of Cosmic Boy, Phantom Girl, Madarita Lad, and Shrinking Violet. Calorie Queen yells at Superboy and others, Swear us in, Superboy, we won the right to take these losers' place in the Legion. It is a very bold cover. And who could pass up this story hook? The first title is Last Fight for a Legionnaire, and it is the story shown on the cover. The story starts with a blonde man in a purple tunic walking into the Legion headquarters to try out, only to walk out dejected. Angrily, he uses his powers to fling a statue of Ferrolad into the sky magnetically. But then his mind is compelled to return it to the ground safely. He looks over and sees a number of other rejects standing around the plaza. One, a lovely blonde girl, walks up to him and says they should go ahead and put the whammy on the six legionnaires that cost them a spot. Offworld, the science police get word that an important news item needs to be delivered to a legionnaire, one that will change that legionnaire's career. Now back on Earth again, the rejects enter the legion headquarters and demand a fight. They were all slighted because they don't have a unique power, one of the requisite factors for legionnaires in their constitution. This group of rejects includes Magnolad, the purple-tunicked person from before who comes from Brawl, Esperlas from Titan, Phantom Lad from Bigotsel, Microlad from Imsk, Chameleon Kid from Durla, and of course, Terran Loy, Calorie Queen, who comes from Brawl. All of these rejects come from planets that have innate superpowers, but all of whom are already represented in the Legion. And Calorie Queen is a little bit different than just plain old Matter Eater Lad, though. She can eat anything, but her father discovered a way that she could harness the atomic energy of what she eats into super strength. Therefore, she has the strength of ten women. The six rejects have this fight and basically mop the floor with their natural Legion rivals. But then Superboy arrives and tosses them all out. The Legionnaires who were defeated, interestingly enough, get angry at Superboy for doing this and demand a rematch with the rejects at dawn. This time, rather than fight one-on-one, the Legionnaires use teamwork to outdo the rejects. They're all defeated. Chameleon Boy sums it up nicely. Superheroes win because of teamwork. As for that earlier scene, this post-victory scene is interrupted when it turns out that Matter Eater Lad has been drafted into Bismalian politics and must leave the story. In fact, this is a story hint from an earlier adult Legion tale from Adventure Comics back in the Silver Age. Before he leaves, Mad Reader Lad tells the team that they should consider Calorie Queen as his replacement. It shows he is willing to forgive and help an opponent, 
but sadly, the team doesn't recruit her. I wonder why. Maybe in the 70s, the ability to eat anything wasn't considered a cool enough superpower to continue. I'll talk in a bit about why this issue is important, but basically, Calorie Queen alone makes it priceless for me. The second story in this book is called A Deathstroke at Dawn and teams up the natural fighting duo of Shadowlass and Nightgirl. I will say this is the Mike Grelliest of costumes for Nightgirl, the equivalent of about two tissues and a hanky of material covering only her essentials. It reminds me more of a costume from Warlord than usual Legion fare. The story opens with Nightgirl at the mercy of Crafty Colson and his gang. Bathed in bright light, she's helpless and he is about to shoot her when Shadowlass shows up. Shady plunges the room into darkness, which immediately empowers Nightgirl. A skirmish ensues, and Nightgirl is shot when she dives in front of a laser that's meant for Shady. The Legion and the Substitute Legionnaire fly off to a group, but Coulson wants to finish the job. And knowing that Cosmic Boy likes Nightgirl, Coulson thinks that they should preemptively go after Rock and kill him. Elsewhere, Nightgirl recovers. Amazingly, although that laser would have killed a Talakian rhino, it only stunned her. Nightgirl recaps her origin to Shady, and then confesses she went after Coulson to prove to Cosmic Boy that she can survive on her own. Cosmic Boy wanted her to stop adventuring. As he says, she isn't Supergirl, and lawbreakers know her weakness. He ends the argument saying he is going to find another date and flies off. But peeking in on that date, we see he can't get his mind off of Nightgirl. Coulson finds Rock and is ready to kill him when Lyda shows up just in the nick of time to barrel into them all. Just then the sun rises, making her helpless again. This time Rock ends up saving the day. He then affirms that she is his girl and they fly off for a daytime picnic where, quote, she can't resist him, end quote. Okay, on to the issue in general. I love the first story. Magnolad, Esperlas, Chameleon Kid, and Microlad all become members of the Legion of Supervillains, so there is some lasting power to this introduction. Matter Eater Lad basically quits the team here, so this is of some importance for his story. And of course, Calorie Queen is introduced. The second story is okay. It is a bit dated in terms of its gender politics, but at least Shooter had Nightgirl not just kowtow to social norms. She wants to be an adventurer, she thinks she can handle herself. And anytime Shady and Nightgirl team up, it's great. I mean, that's a natural pair. As for the art, no surprise, it's brilliant. As per this show, and your guys' format, I'll review some of my favorite pieces of art. My favorite page is page 6 of the first story. Here we have the origin of Calorie Queen, and her power is easily shown visually by having herself be in stark silhouette with an old atomic power atom over that black image. And the bottom panel shows the rejects just trampling the real members. That's one great page. As for other panels I like, well, page 7 of the first story has a classic growl chart of Superboy flying around the villains and wrapping them up in his cape. This is just a standard Mike Grell shot that is often seen in these Legion books, and in fact, I believe was one of the panels uh, in an earlier issue that I represented where Superboy wraps up some other criminals. I also love the top panel of page 3 of the second story. This is where Nightgirl dives in front of that laser to protect Shadowlass. It shows Grell's mastery of the human form. You really feel that action of Nightgirl leaping. And, of course, these characters are gorgeous. Well, that's all for this issue. Thanks for letting me prattle on a bit. I'm pretty sure this is my last Legion review for this show. 
And I just can't thank Darren and Ruth enough for letting me come on and talk about these books. As uh, I've discussed in earlier segments in the show, these books are really the foundation of my love of comics and are very important to me historically and really started my love of the Legion, which has lasted my entire life. So long live the Legion and thanks Mike Grell for providing us with such great artwork. Big thanks to Darren and Ruth for having me back on the show. My name is Jeff Messer of the Geek Brain Popcast. Many of you might know that my podcast series has been on hiatus for a few months, but I do have a brand new blog site, geekbrainpopcast.blogspot.com, where I am continuing to talk about all things geeky out there. I am here again with you on Warlord Worlds, this exceptional podcast show by Darren and Ruth, to talk about Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes during the era of Mike Grell as the artist. And right now we're going to be talking about the two stories that are contained within issue 213, which came out as a cover date of October 1975, Superboy starring the Legion of Superheroes, and the story that we uh, see on the cover is The Jaws of Fear, which shows Superboy streaking across space toward the Legion cruiser that is being eaten up by a giant space creature of some sort with big fangs. We can see the Legionnaires inside the uh, the bubble dome of the cruiser all freaking out and panicking. Uh, we see the same thing essentially on page one when we get into the book. Art by Mike Grell, story by Jim Shooter. The first page is, uh, of course, the, if you will, preview synopsis of what's going on. Superboy telling everybody about the story, and it shows the image of Ultra Boy in the dome of the Legion cruiser freaking out. Of course, those fans of the Legion may recall Ultra Boy got his powers after being swallowed by a space creature similar to the one that is about to chomp down on the Legion cruiser. Once we get into the main story here, the first page we see the Legion at the meeting room table in a, an image by Mike Grell that is very reminiscent of the painting, the very famous painting of The Last Supper, Brainiac 5, at the center of the table and being flanked by Phantom Girl, Wildfire, Lightning Lad, and Saturn Girl to his right, Chameleon Boy, Superboy, and Cosmic Boy to his left. Meanwhile, outside of the meeting room, there's a pair of boots floating by on anti-gravity shoes passing through into the Legion headquarters, and then he suddenly appears in the meeting room where everybody is gathered, just saying, hey, good morning, Legionnaires. Phantom Girl screams out a trespasser, and then Wildfire jumps into action, saying, grab him, which he does. Gives a nice tackle, and the guy introduces himself very casually, very flippantly, as Ben Pars, the greatest burglar in the galaxy. And he tells the Legion that he's bored, everything is easy for him, and he's decided that the biggest challenge is to steal the miracle machine within 48 hours. And he just simply walks out. So Brainy sends Superboy and Chameleon Boy to check on the miracle machine. Meanwhile, Saturn Girl says that she probed Ben Parr's mind, and she learns that he has a sixth sense, which warns him of traps and alarms and gives him the unique powers to overcome them. Oh, and another time, another place, he could have been a Legionnaire. Who knows? Well, Superboy and Chameleon Boy return with the Miracle Machine, saying it's safely sealed inside of a cube of inertron. And Brainiac 5 gives us a little bit of a background on this. The Miracle Machine is a pretty dangerous piece of machinery because it converts thoughts into reality. And in the wrong hands, it can be used to enslave whole galaxies. Worse, with a random thought, an untrained user could accidentally destroy the entire universe. Lightning Lad says, let's... Let's destroy it, then. This is too dangerous. Cosmic Boy says, no, it was given to them by the controllers. 
and they were entrusted with it. They need to keep it safe until the universe can use it wisely. Lightning Lad arguing with Cosmic Boy, but it could wipe everything out. So they vote. That's what they do. And after they vote, they have voted to destroy it. So they rip open the lid. Superboy and Ultra Boy start beating on it, but nothing. They can't, can't phase it. Then everybody jumps in. Wildfire, Lightning Lad, Sun Boy. They start shooting it with their powers. Ultra Boy and Superboy hitting it with flash vision and x-ray vision. And it does absolutely nothing. So they decide to seal it back up and just guard it. So later in the evening, there's a shadowy figure approaching the door and it gets zapped. Wait, it's Phantom Girl. She turned into a phantom, but she's still zapped. Shrinking Violet shrinks down to a tiny, tiny size, and she gets zapped by uh, this fog, if you will, that causes paralysis. Chameleon Boy is disguised as an insect, and a net flies out and captures him. And that was it. They've been testing it. Phantom Girl, Shrinking Violet, Chameleon Boy, they couldn't possibly get in. So Brainiac says, I doubt that Ben Pears can. Well, there you go. They've decided that it must be safe. They've got it under lock and key. And they look at a clock on the wall that says 549. And then the next morning, they wake up and Brainiac 5 says, we've been robbed. Cosmic Boy is sitting there going, I, I've been here the whole time. The, the miracle machine, it's right here. Pars didn't show, Lightning Lad says. And then Brainiac 5 points out, well, if he didn't, then who stole our clock? And the big giant clock on the wall has been taken. Crazy as it may seem. They think they're being taunted by Ben Pars. So they decide to go after him. Let's take off and go after him. Let's leave Superboy here. And uh, Superboy will just sit on top of the, the case and guard it. And they take off in space looking for Ben Pars. Not long afterwards, they're in space in Sector 14. A lot of nothing is there. But then all of a sudden, whoa, there's this giant space dragon, space lizard, space whale. It's like something out of The Empire Strikes Back, really. And they see it coming, and Brainiac 5 calls it a giant Galactosaur. Oh no, they're going to be hitting this Galactosaur. They're going to be uh, running into it. they got to do something. Evasive maneuvers, or they'll be eaten alive. But meanwhile, the Legionnaires don't realize Ben Pars has a secret headquarters, a little escape pod, a little uh, like a, a mobile home of some sort in outer space, inside the space creature behind its teeth, just hiding away. Uh, good old Ben Pars. And Ultra Boy, meanwhile, freaks out because this reminds him, of course, of his secret origin where he was swallowed by a space dragon that was radioactive that ended up giving him his powers. So he freaks out. He starts hitting everybody, knocks Saturn Girl uh, unconscious there. And Ben Pars' alarms go off, of course, and he, he realizes the Legion's about to see him. Meanwhile, Superboy has been watching with his, his vision from far, far away. And Superboy says to himself, uh, I wish... I had my hands on that rotten, despicable Ben Pars. And suddenly he's there, and he's got his hands on Ben Pars. His wish came true. Of course, that's what the Miracle Machine does. It makes all your wishes come true. And Superboy punches Ben Pars, and he's unconscious. And meanwhile, outside, Ultra Boy, with his super strength, is holding the, the mouth of the creature open so that it won't bite down on the Legion cruiser so that they can get away. And then, of course, at the last possible moment, he zips away using is super speed. And all is right with the universe. The end. All right, so this first story's got some uh, some really cool stuff in it. Like I said, the Last Supper image in the first panel is is pretty cool. Maybe uh, one of my favorites. Uh, Mike Grell doing a little homage there. 
I got to say that one of one of the best sequences though is Wildfire tackling Ben Pars and uh, having him on the floor holding onto his shirt threateningly. Uh, two two panels at the top of page two or page three rather that really show Mike Grell's ability to draw action in, in such a great, realistic way, like uh, Wildfire tackling Ben Pars. It's a great, great shot. Uh, that's probably my favorite piece of art in the book. Uh, there's the great shot of the Legionnaires trying to all use their powers on the Miracle Machine, except for Lightning Lad's arms, which look a little wonky. Uh, that's kind of a cool image there, uh, showing the diversity of powers in action. And uh, let's see, finally, the, the great shot of Ultra Boy holding up the, the mouth of the creature on page 11 is really quite cool. There's a second story in here as well, written by Jim Shooter with art by Mike Grell and Bill Drott. Uh, I don't know much about Bill Drott, but his uh, artistic, I guess his inks, he must have been inking Grell on this, fit very well with Mike Grell's. I remember this being one of the first Legion comic stories that I, I think I ever ever read back in the day after many months or, you know, I'm trying to remember as a kid, like my cousin or somebody had a Legion comic that was missing its cover that had this story in it. I don't think I had the whole first story, but I, I do remember seeing most of this story in that that book. But this was after I had first come to know the Legion with issue 219. This story, the backup, is a solo adventure with Timberwolf. It is called Trapped to Live, Free to Die. And uh, Timberwolf is on a solo mission, and he uh, he's looking for a distress signal in a wreck on a planet. He sets down the ship, goes out to explore. He finds a guy trapped inside the wreckage underneath uh, some fallen machinery. He says, I'm here to save you, but look out. This dude has a black space mace, I guess, a big mace, a big club with a ball on the end, if you will. Uh, and he whacks Timberwolf. Oh, it was a trap. It was a trap to lure him here. And then Timberwolf remembers that it is a guy named Black Mace. I should have recognized him, he says. We battled him before back in Adventure Comics 374, but were never able to capture him. He's a strong, fast, invincible fighter and deadly with his energy-charged mace. He steals Timberwolf's Legion flight ring and says, so long, clown, as he starts to leave. And Timberwolf realizes he's going to get away. He says, you're not going anywhere. Our Legion craft have auto defenses, controls programmed to respond only to Legionnaires. At which point Black Mace decides, well, I'll take you along so you can fly as well. And uh, I will just, uh, you'll be my hostage. And he's watching his every move. And then Timberwolf suddenly creates a force field bubble around himself. And Black Mace is trying to whack at it. Timberwolf breaks free of the bubble and does a nice acrobatic flip, crunching Black Mace right in the midsection there. Whack, knocking him down. Black Mace takes a swing at him. It's a bit, it's a big fight that goes on for pretty much a whole page until uh, Timberwolf is on the floor and Black Mace uh, has got the drop on him. Timberwolf's holding his hand to Black Mace's hand and then he touches the Legion flight ring, which activates the ring, and he goes flying up to the ceiling, knocking him out so Timberwolf can shackle him, get his ring back, and fly home. The end. Really quick story. There's a lot of bizarre inconsistencies in this story with Legion lore, even though it was written by Jim Shooter. Touching the Legion flight ring, I don't think, would be the thing that activates it. It's kind of a peculiar little move. But all in all, 
it's just a quick, fun diversion of a story. Timberwolf, of course, in his pointy hair, Wolverine-esque looking appearance in this. Uh, always a great, fun character. Uh, lots of really good action in this, by the way. The, the shot at the bottom of page four of this story with Timberwolf breaking out of the bubble and doing a somersault flip into Black Mace. Mike Grell has drawn him with multiple kind of two images of Timberwolf showing you his acrobatic skills. So that's a good display of the powers of Timberwolf. And the, uh, the fight sequence, very, very good as well on page five. Mike Grell, always great at action shots. And uh, whether the story is good or not, uh, it's always fun to look at with Mike Grell drawing it. Can't exactly figure out what uh, what it is that causes Bill Drought's artwork to blend with Mike Grell's. It is Grell. I mean, you can see the artwork is Mike Grell, but then there's also still, there's something about it that is a little off. And not in a bad way. I like the artwork, but you can tell somebody else is working with Grell. And I think Bill Drought is a, a pretty good compliment to Mike Grell. I have to look into him. So uh, somebody go out and Google Bill Drought and see whatever happened to him and why he uh, stopped working with Mike Grell, because that was a really good story. That is it for Legion of Superheroes, or Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes 213. Thanks again to Darren and Ruth for letting me jump in and join in the conversation. I'll be back in several episodes. We're coming up pretty soon on my first comic book I ever owned, Legion of Superheroes, Superboy, and I see I want to say Legion, but it's Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes, number 219. I'm so much looking forward to talking about that one with you guys. And in the meantime, that's it. This is Jeff Messer from the Geek Brain Popcast saying, take it away, Darren and Ruth. Next up is listener feedback, when we share emails and other messages we've received since last time. Today, we're sharing comments from the episode when Chris and Jerry of Bat Books for Beginners joined us to talk about Batman Mask. We appreciate every comment. They add so much to the show. Thanks to everyone who wrote in or got in touch through social media. Jeff Messer of the Geek Brain Popcast wrote, Wonderful episode. I had long forgotten about Batman Mask. I have had it since it came out. I love Grell, and anything he does is great. Now I want to revisit this one. Thanks for the great episode. Martin Gray of the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl wrote saying, Never heard of Batman Mask. I got as far as Harvey Dent Ballet Dancer, switched off, and went to eBay. I'll be back. And a few days later, he followed up with this letter. What a great show. Chris and Jerry did you proud. And you underestimate your own ability to talk about characters with whose history you're not massively familiar. You're Mike Grell fans, seasoned comic readers, and sharp as two well-traveled tacks. Thanks for putting me onto this terrific book. On the one hand, I'm with Ruth. More story, please. There were so many massive images that maybe didn't merit such treatment in terms of their importance in the book. On the other hand, they look great. Mike did an excellent job with the script, too. There were some great lines, just the right side of melodramatically overwrought. Alfred especially was nicely tweaked. Random thoughts? Love the back clasps. It's not very nice the way Bruce sees the tragedies as an opportunity to boost audiences. That moment can likely be traced back to the earlier version of the story one of the lads mentioned, with Bruce Wayne Batman in the obsessed loon role. Ditto the I'm always watching bits. He's more than a tad stalkery. I really like that panel of Harvey's face bisected by the noose. That's so clever. Ditto the tuned out effect of the blank word balloons. I've never seen that previously. Laura seems horribly pushy with all of her honeymoon talk. Okay, she's probably perfectly reasonable given the attitudes of the times. But as a modern reader, I want Bruce to dump her for that nice actress at the theater next door, Julie Madison. Yes, please to more Grell Batman. 
I'd love to hear what you think of Detective 455. Thank you for that great letter, Martin, and for that reference to Julie Madison. We looked her up and read more about her thanks to you. Tythese, and I hope I've pronounced that right, commented Batman Mask was a good Elseworld read, especially for me since I love the Phantom of the Opera gothic story. I love the art of Mike Grell. The Irredeemable Shag of the Fire and Water Podcast Network wrote, Really great episode. I've never read this particular book, but hearing the recap and discussion was very entertaining. Jerry and Chris were fantastic guests. Interestingly, every time I hear Chris, I can't help but associate him with the narrator from the Batman 66 TV series, thanks to his excellent work on Stella's Batgirl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Thanks for sharing your thoughts, Shag. And Stella gave a special shout out to Chris as well, saying he was a great person to have on our show. And in excellent Bat Books for Beginners fashion, Mark Sweeney of the ITG blog and podcast gave our last episode five batarangs, saying great job to all those involved. Simon Barre Brizois let us know he liked the cover of the Batman mask, noticing a phantom of the opera feel to the artwork, similar to the European romanticism you find in novels like Dracula or the Bronte novels like Wuthering Heights. We appreciated that atmosphere and style as well, Simon. And we want to give a very special thanks to Simon. He did some outstanding promotions for Warlord Worlds on Twitter. He included our logo and link, calling it a great platform to study, analyze, and discuss the world of Mike Grell and his work. He is glad that our podcast helped him discover Warlord, a series that he now loves. Thanks, Simon. And we want to let everyone know that Simon has started a fun series of reviews of Warlord issues on Twitter. He does a series of five tweets per issue, complete with photos. They're all fantastic, and I've really been pleased with the number of people retweeting his post and sharing the conversations with him. You can follow along at S. Barre Brisbois on Twitter. We'll include a link in our show notes. Charlton Hero shared a great article about Remco's Warlord toys. It has great photos and is fun to read. We'll add a link to our show notes so you can check it out and definitely always follow them. Sean Ross, co-host on the Pulp to Pixel podcast, wrote, I'm a huge Green Arrow fan and especially loved your episode covering Green Arrow number 27 and 28. The Ollie-Travis meeting cracked me up. I love the meta in-joke about how similarly Grell drew the two characters. Grail's Green Arrow run is still definitive and lives fondly in my head canon. And because of your show, I recently have begun to collect issues of Warlord, which I'm loving. Thanks for sharing that with us, Sean. And listeners can look forward to hearing more from Sean on an upcoming episode. Douglas Herring shared a great photo of Mike Grell in medieval armor on horseback. It was taken in 2001 at a Renaissance fair in the state of Washington. Mike was in a group called the Seattle Knights. That's Knights with a K. It's great to see Mike Grell in action, revealing his adventurous and fun-loving heart. Thanks very much for sharing those wonderful photos, Douglas. To close this feedback, I want to say a very special thank you to my friend Brian Mulvey. He got me an amazing Christmas gift, which is an original commission by Mike Grell. It's a split image of John Sable in his battle mask and B.B. Flem wearing his glasses, so you can see half of each face. It's so unique, I would have never thought of it, and so generous. Thank you very much, Brian. Next, we want to extend our thanks to everyone who supported us on social media. These are people who promoted our last episode and shared comments. If we miss a name, let us know and we'll include it next time. And please do forgive us if we mispronounce your name. If that happens, let us know and we'd be happy to correct that next time as well. Alan Wright from BoldOutlaw.com Dr. Ange of the Supergirl Comic Box Commentary Blog, 
Ashford of the Ride On Network featuring Feathers and Foes and Straight Out of Gallifrey. Bill Beer of the Too Old Too New podcast. Brian Mulvey. Chris Carnes of Bat Books for Beginners. Chris Mounts. Chris Sheehan of the Cosmic Treadmill podcast and the blog Chris's on Infinite Earths. Clinton Robinson of the Coffee and Comics blog and podcast. Comics in the Golden Age with Mike and Chris. Derek William Crabb of the Fanholes podcast and History of Comics on Film. Diablo Frank of the Idlehead of Diablo Martian Manhunter blog, the Diana Prince Wonder Woman podcast, and Spinometer. Dr. G. Manhunterdology of the Pulp to Pixel podcast. Ed and Terry Moore of Till Productions. Jerry Green of Bat Books for Beginners. Grant Richter of Avatar of the Green and the upcoming Crackathoom podcast with the Long Box of Darkness. The Irredeemable Shag, a.k.a. Firestorm fan of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Jared Albrecht, the yard sale artist from Comics with Normies. Jay Jones, a.k.a. FKA Jason of the Silver and Gold Podcast. Jeff Messer of the Geek Brain Podcast and Blog. Jeffrey Brown. Jerry McMullen from the Worst Comics Podcast Ever and the Essential Showcase. Joe Crawford of the blog for the Non-Discerning Reader. John Baker, who does sci-fi TV reviews at 3 If By Space. John Holloway of the Worst Comics Podcast Ever. Justice's First Dawn with Mike Peacock. Karen Williams of the Sweet Between the Pages blog. Keith G. Baker. Kirk Spencer. Larry Looper Jr., a.k.a. Vic Sage and writer for The Retroist. Laura Phillips, a.k.a. Mountain Flower. Let's Talk Masters of the Universe. Longbox Crusade podcast with Pat and Jared. Mark Adams of the Mark's Mess podcast. Mark Sweeney from the ITG blog and podcast and comics couplets. Martin Gray of the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl. Michael Allen Carlisle of the blog Cratbox Son of Cthulhu. Michael Bailey of the Fortress of Baileytude. Nicholas Prom of Comic Reflections. Pat Sampson of the Longbox Crusade. Paul Hicks of the Waiting for Doom podcast. Professor Allen of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Randy Andrews of Soundtrack Alley and the new Gen 13 podcast. Reggie Hancock of the Cosmic Treadmill Podcast, Rolled Spine Podcast, Roy Cleary of the Silver and Gold Podcast, Russell Burbage of the Legion of Superbloggers, Ryan Daly of Midnight the Podcasting Hour and Gimme Those Star Wars, Sean Ross of the Pulp to Pixel Podcast, Silver and Gold Podcast with Jay and Roy, Simon Barry Brisbaugh, Stella of Batgirl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, Tim Wallace of the Cord Industries Blue Beetle Blog and the Podcast Beetlemania, Weird Science DC, and Wendy Friedman of the podcast Double Page Spread. Before we go, we want to provide our contact information. Please let us know your thoughts through email, Facebook, or Twitter. If you want to contact us directly, and if you have something you'd like to have read on the show, then please send us an email to warlordworlds at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr using the name Warlord Worlds, and you can also visit warlordworlds.com for links to all of our social media pages. You can listen to our show through iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, and all of our episodes are always available at warlordworlds.com. You can also find the show on YouTube as part of the Rad Adventures Podcast Network. That's Rad, R-A-D, which is short for Ruth and Darren. On the Rad Adventures YouTube channel, you'll find all of the episodes of all of our podcasts, including Warlord Worlds, as well as Trekker Talk about 23rd Century Bounty Hunter Mercy St. Clair by Ron Randall, and Xenozoic Xenophiles about the Cadillacs and Dinosaurs series Xenozoic Tales by Mark Schultz. If you like the show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Every review helps the podcast be more likely to show up in search results. And on YouTube, we hope you'll subscribe to the channel and give us some likes on the videos. Thanks for listening, and we hope you will come back next time for another new episode of Warlord Worlds.
Warlord Worlds is a proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. For more information, visit comicspodcast.com. We are not affiliated with DC Comics or Mike Grell. The views expressed on the show are solely ours. Music is taken from the album Royalty-Free Instrumental Music for Movies and Websites. We make no money from this podcast and no copyright infringement is intended. Thank you.